0: So, our next uh, speaker will be Professor Dan Batson from the University of Kansas. So, he's done pioneering work on uh, uh, pro social emotion, motivation, and behavior, as well as the antisocial and pro social uh, behavioral consequences of religion. And today he's going to be talking about personal religion, tolerance, and universal <coughs> compassion. Thanks. Take it away. Yep. Thanks, Delighted with the weather, uh, and I hope it's acceptable in Oxford under these circumstances to take off a jacket. Um, I'm a social psychologist, and there is a sub-discipline within social psychology that might be called the social psychology of religion. And I don't know whether you know, but the central question of that sub-discipline for many years was exactly the question that is the title of this conference, uh, or something very close to it. Uh, The title, as I recall, is something like uh, Does Religion Lead to Tolerance or Intolerance? Uh, In fact, I think it's fair to say that that subdiscipline actually emerged in an attempt to answer that question. So there is a literature uh, that that emergence came in the 1940s. Uh, this is not a new question, as you might have. Um, but let me contextualize the question, because as we were yesterday, it's important to look at things in historical context. Uh, first, the question emerged primarily, and the discipline, sub-discipline emerged, in the U.S. Uh, in the 1940s, Uh, And we probably need to take sort of each key component of that, does religion lead to tolerance or intolerance, and specify what is meant by that in this context. So first, religion, what the people were thinking about who were asking this question, uh, they were thinking about what I'm calling personal religion, uh, that is, And and I don't mean that people are making up their own religions. The idea is this is religion at at the level of the individual, what the individual believer (coughs) believes, does, thinks, feels, in the religious domain. Uh, So it's personal religion, but more specifically, they were interested in Christian individuals, those that were related to the Christian church in some way, and specifically white typically middle class US Christians. There also was work, I should say, in Great Britain. There was work in Canada, but those were the main areas where there was attention to this. Uh, So that's that's what is meant by religion when they're asking this question. Uh, And I will tend to focus then, because that's where the research focuses, on that specific instantiation of personal religion. Um, leads to, they were interested in the effects of religion on tolerance or intolerance. Um, the data are almost entirely correlational. So uh, there is that issue. They were aware of that issue, I think. But the assumption was, and I think there's some justification in the assumption that intolerance probably doesn't produce, or tolerance, produce religion. It's the other way around that it's going to be. but. The possibility of additional variables that might affect both certainly remains as an issue. Uh, Tolerance, intolerance. They were not thinking of what we have been talking about primarily a sort of ideological tolerance. That's not what they were thinking about. They were thinking about basically whether you would tolerate other people from different out-groups. So uh, it's either liking or antipathy. And there was a concern about two specific issues, I think, in the 40s that produced the discipline. One of the issues, of course, was race in the US. Uh, Both issues were affected by the Second World War because race became particularly salient as you had uh, issues of trying to integrate fighting units in the Second World War. There's race and, of course, in the US, as Walter sort of alluded to yesterday, uh, there is what's called the Bible Belt, which runs across uh, the US pretty much from east to west, particularly the southern half of the country, really. Uh, And that's where religion is strongest. That's where racism is strongest, and certainly was at that time. And so there's this puzzling link Uh, The other issue was anti-Semitism coming out of uh, the recent experience at that time of Nazi Europe. And a number of the people, by no means all, but a number of the people who were involved in this research and were asking this question were refugees, Jewish refugees, (coughs) who had come to the US uh, to escape Nazi Europe. You've got those concerns, but of course these people were also aware of the Judeo-Christian message that religion, certainly their religion, should produce universal compassion. Uh, You can take it all the way back to the holiness code in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, where this is like written, most estimates are around 700 B.C. Uh, where we've got the, you should love neighbor as yourself, that actually comes very early. And even at that stage, the conception of neighbor was very broad. It included strangers, foreigners. Uh, there's an allusion to uh, the experience of the Israelites in Egypt. So there, it was a broad conception then. And of course, when you get Jesus talking about loving your enemies, it becomes even broader. So there is this message, and yet, there is this phenomenon in society. And so people were asking, what role does religion play in producing tolerance or intolerance, in this sense that they're talking about it, which is essentially prejudice of various kinds. Okay? So that's the context. And if, if one has that question, there were lots of studies. Uh, Here is a quick summary of, this is 44 findings from 36 different studies. Uh, Religious involvement here, and these are from 1940 to 75. Uh, Religious involvement is measured usually in one of three ways, Uh, attendance or Membership in some religious organization, that's one possibility. Another is positivity of religious attitudes. The third is conservatism or orthodoxy of religious beliefs. Those are usually the ways it's measured. We've got these are the main different measures of prejudice that were used. racial prejudice, <coughs> ethnocentrism, which is simply uh, you know favoritism of one's own group and dislike of any other groups, whatever, anti-Semitism. Uh, Prejudice against other minorities. This runs the gamut. This this is just sort of a, you know, grab bag of what's left. Uh, It can be prejudice against (coughs) Asians, against Hispanics, nonconformists, socialists, communists, delinquents, criminals, Uh, I may have left out a few, but it's, it's, just a loose collection. And what you find is it doesn't matter how you're measuring intensity of religious involvement or belief. Uh, It doesn't matter how you're measuring prejudice. The effects are extremely strong (coughs) and consistent. And uh, the association between religious involvement and prejudice is positive. Uh, The eight that are questionable, that is, non-significant effects Most of those are from the northern US. The two where it's negative are actually done with adolescence or pre-adolescence. And so when you take those things into consideration, this is not a formal meta-analysis. These data don't deserve it because they're they're really quite messy, but uh, I don't think you need it. It's very clear. And as you might imagine, as these data begin to come in, there was some consternation among religious leaders, and among some of the researchers, because many of the researchers working on this were themselves religious. Uh, And this is not what they were looking to find, okay. But actually, the consternation didn't last long. Um, By 1950, there were people, uh, the authoritarian personality research team, a large team, and in Allport primarily, and Allport's work is the best known, and so I'll focus on it. Who said, But we've got to take account of how people are religious. I mean, we've talked about differentiating different types of religion in here before. I'm talking about differentiating psychologically, and that's what people were wanting to do at this point. And specifically, Allport had a conception, he had a, a general model of personality and the gradual development of personality. and a distinction between a mature and immature personality, and so he talked about immature and mature religion. And he said, well, you got these effects because of immature religion, but mature religion won't produce this. That was in 1950, by 1960 he had changed to talking about extrinsic and intrinsic religion, Uh, trying to leave aside the sort of pejorative notion of immature, Uh, and what he meant by extrinsic and intrinsic, uh, extrinsic for him was a strictly utilitarian approach to religion where one is using religion as a means to self-serving ends, and so to grant safety, you know, the classic sort of fire insurance notion, social standing, solace, those kinds of things. OK, it's using one's religion. Uh, and he distinguished that from an intrinsic orientation, which is oriented towards the unification of being, taking seriously the commandments of brotherhood, <coughs> strives to transcend all self-centered needs. And Alport argued that intrinsic religion, and this is a quote from him, rules out all enmity, contempt, and bigotry, okay, that it was simply incompatible with this. And so the argument would be, we need to distinguish those. And the reason you see those other effects uh, is because most people who are religious are extrinsically religious, and therefore, that's what's producing the effect. And in order to test that idea, of course, we need some way to assess whether a person is extrinsically or intrinsically religious. There were two major ways that were used. the first, Alport and students <laughs> developed scales to measure these things. Uh, and here are some sample items from their extrinsic scale. Uh, church is most important as a place to formulate good social relationships, uh, comfort, so forth. I mean, you can see the instrumentality of this. Uh, on the intrinsic scale, I hard her- to carry by religion. Uh, not prevented by unavoidable circumstances. I attend church. Religion, for the intrinsic, was supposed to be a master motive in life. It, it was supposed to actually shape behavior. Okay, And people would be given these questions. These are just sample questions. Uh, there were actually nine on the intrinsic scale and 11 on the extrinsic scale. Uh, for Alport, it was simply a, a forced choice response. Uh, most people since then have used a Likert type scale where you mark on a s- scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree about endorsing this item. Okay. Uh, the other way to measure this distinction was to look at frequency of attendance at religious activities. Okay, and the idea here is that, well, the distinction was made between three levels. Uh, first people who were low in attendance, and this is the U.S., and so uh, their criterion for low in attendance was less than four times a year. These are sort of the major religious holidays, so that's considered low attendance. Uh, Then there's moderate attendance, which would be more than four times a year, but less than weekly, and then there's high attendance, which would be at least weekly. And for some, it was well beyond that. And the idea was that the extrinsics would be the ones who are moderately active. Okay, So that would be that moderate level. The lows are just not religious by this criteria. Uh, the moderates, they're the extrinsic supposedly. And then the ones who are high in attendance, that would be, those would be the intrinsics, the ones who are really serious about it. Okay, so these two different ways to measure. And I have combined these in this table. and this is data from, what is it, 40 different findings from 31 different studies, from 49 to 77. Same measures, okay. uh, and association where intrinsic, this is on intolerance or prejudice, where intrinsic is higher than extrinsic, never found. Okay. Uh, equal to, and I'll talk about those in just a second, but obviously the vast majority, the extrinsic score is higher than the intrinsic, which seems to be entirely consistent with sports analysis and others' analyses. And you can almost hear, at the point that these data started coming in, an audible sigh of relief <laughs> in the <laughs> literature. Yeah. Uh, these two, one of these is a measure not of direct prejudice, but of support for Uh, civil rights policies on political issues, basically. And the other one was measuring racial prejudice in an integrated church in northern Florida. And so that's a fairly anomalous situation that was at the time. So again, the data are extremely strong. Uh, And we're greeted with joy. Um, But I think there's some problems. And the first is that in all of these studies, save one that I can think of, in all of the studies, prejudice is measured on self-report questionnaires. Okay, Well, these questionnaires are not subtle. I mean, none of them asks, are you a racist bigot? (laughs) But they get pretty damn close. Uh, And if a person were wishing not to appear prejudiced, he would know what the right answers are. And to the degree that churches were teaching, beginning to teach, hey, you shouldn't, you know, this is not cool to be this way. uh, That's a problem. The people who are most involved, most... Quote, intrinsic might very well want to be the ones most concerned to present themselves as being less prejudiced. So that's a serious problem in the research. Second thing is that I think there's a discrepancy between uh, Allport's ideal for what he thought intrinsic religion was and how it would behave and the implementation. I mean, there's always that issue when you're trying to operationalize some conceptual variable. Uh, and the first clue to this was, in that research, I mean, I was showing differences between intrinsic and extrinsic, right? Well, Alport had assumed that these were opposite ends of the same continuum. In fact, he even scored one of the scales, he scored the intrinsic scale negatively because he was, thought it would be just measuring the opposite of the other. Turns out that's not true. In virtually all samples, what you get is no relationship between these two scales. The only place where you tend to get a relationship is if you've got an extremely conservative sample, religiously conservative. Then they begin to correlate negatively. But the correlations usually aren't above like 0.3, even then. So these are not opposite ends. There's that concern, and when you actually look at the two scales independently and go back to that previous table, what you find is that the extrinsic scale does tend to correlate negatively with these measures. The intrinsic scale actually doesn't correlate at all. It tends to have a zero correlation. And further, the intrinsic, people who score high on the intrinsic scale or who are high in frequency and attendance are no less prejudiced than people who are not religious at all. So it's not clear that this has ruled out enmity, contempt, and bigotry in quite the way that Alport thought. Okay. Uh, a third problem is in Allport's conception, I mean, what he was trying to do with the intrinsic scale and intrinsic religion was operationalize his notion of mature religion from back from 1950. And if you look at the items, they're ones that you could imagine somebody who had mature religion by his definition, the, the person might endorse those items, but so might a person who was essentially a fanatic, uh, a, well, using Eric Hoffer's term, a true believer, you know, someone who had the need to sort of compulsively believe. You would get very high scores from them as well. Uh, and one of the dimensions, or one of the aspects of mature religion for Allport was that a person could be self-critical about their religion. That they would value the doubting and reflection process in his terms, they could be sure but not cocksure. That is, they had to be sure enough to be able to act but not cocksure, okay? And so, it seemed to me that there was that aspect of his mature religion was not really reflected in his intrinsic scale. And so that led me to try to come up with a third dimension. And actually, I I should mention, given that the intrinsic and extrinsic tend to be unrelated, I start, I'm viewing these as dimensions, not as types. And so I'm not gonna be talking about intrinsic and extrinsic I'm going to be talking about these as dimensions that may be predictive of tolerance or intolerance. So the quest dimension, uh, the concept at least, is a person who's seeking to face existential questions, for example, personal uh, mortality, meaning of life, in in their complexity, yet resist clear-cut, pat answers. And so it's facing these existential questions in their complexity, it's viewing doubts as positive, And it's an openness to change, a sense that you haven't got the final answers on religious issues. So that's the idea. And here are some sample items from the Quest scale. We developed a scale to try to measure this. Um, And I hope you can see how it it attempts, at least, to reflect those different dimensions. It turns out scores on this scale are basically independent of the other two. We actually have worked with uh, an orthogonal component analysis to create scores on components that are perfectly uncorrelated, just to make the inference process clearer. But these tend to be unrelated to each other, to all three. So what we're doing is working now within a three-dimensional space. Each individual could have a score on each of these three dimensions, and you know you can place them in this three-dimensional space. Okay. The issue of dealing with self-presentation and these self-report questionnaires has been dealt with in two different ways. One way is to look at forms of prejudice, that is prejudice against groups that are non-proscribed, that is not prohibited by the religious institution. so if we can get something where the, the the church is not saying, hey, this is not good, for example, <coughs> prejudice against homosexuals, uh, then we may have something where we can get around the self-presentation. The other strategy is to try to take covert behavioral measures rather than overt self-report measures of prejudice. <coughs> behavioral measures have the advantage that they're costly, but often you can also make them covert, where the person doesn't know you're actually tapping prejudice. And I'll try to give you an example of one of those. But first, the uh, some data on the religion and non-prescribed prejudice. These data come from five different studies. Several of them measured more than one of these dimensions. Uh, from five different studies, the, we've got prejudice against homosexuals by students and adults in the US. We've got prejudice against communists by students and adults in the US. We've got prejudice against Rastafarians by Seventh-day Adventists in the Virgin Islands. <laughs> <laughs> we've got uh, prejudice against non-whites by Afrikaners in South Africa during apartheid. And we've got uh, social distance really uh, from by Venezuelan university students with different uh, other ethnic groups, and so those are the five studies. Uh, As you can see, if you take non-prescribed prejudice, these first two rows actually just reverse what was found in the previous table. Uh, The quest orientation seems to be related uh, more negatively to prejudice on these (coughs) non-prescribed. Uh, Non-proscribed forms of prejudice. I should also say that of the outliers, I mean there are only four outliers in this whole thing. Otherwise, everything falls in, you know, in the same place. Three of those four come from one study, and the one study is the one in Venezuela, where it's the degree to which you would interact, would like to interact with, or the degree of intimacy with outgroups, and the outgroups included. Uh, U.S. citizens, Canadians, Spaniards. Uh, I'm not clear, sure that this is a very good index of uh, prejudice at that time. Yeah, Jeffrey? How do you know that this isn't just personality type expressing itself in different religious uh, kinds of You don't. Uh, I mean, again, this is the, the third variable possibility. I mean, we, we've got them responding on these religious items uh, but there may be, I mean obviously there's a lot that goes into this and who responds to religion in what way. Uh, And all I would say is that maybe grounds for trying to work back and see okay, what's contributing to this type of religion. So here we sort of flip again and things don't look particularly good for the intrinsic uh, and actually the extrinsic is is a little more promising. Uh, The second way, as I said, is to take covert measures. This is a little more detailed. Uh, I need to describe a procedure to you here. And uh, the idea is to try to take an overt measure using what's called an attributional ambiguity technique in this study. Uh, and this is a technique that was developed by Mel Snyder and colleagues. It's a a very nifty idea, I think, that they did. And basically, participants were placed in a situation where they thought we were trying to assess reactions to different movies, media, material, and so they had a choice of watching one of two movies. Okay, and the two movies were being shown in separate theaters, quote, and it just happened that there was somebody else in each of the theaters. And in one of the theaters, there was a white student. In the other theater, there was a black student. Okay, and there was an empty chair in each of the theaters. They could choose whichever one they wanted to go to. Okay. And in this overt condition, same movie, the movies being shown in the two theaters were exactly the same. And the idea here is that, okay, if you choose to sit with the white in that situation, it may look like you're trying to avoid the black. So it's an overt assessment of prejudice. Uh, the covert is that the two movies are different. And so now you can justify your choice by saying, oh, it's just I like this movie better. And of course, you counterbalance the movies, you counterbalance the side of the room. <coughs> These are the results that we have. The intrinsic scale tends to correlate negatively with avoiding the black in the same movie condition, but it disappears on the covert measure. Whereas the quest, the covert is where it tends to correlate negatively. And so, once again, this, this is roughly the same pattern that we saw on the previous slide. Conception. Okay, <clears throat> let me jump now to a somewhat different issue that's actually raised—at least it was raised in my mind—by looking at the uh, the non-prescribed prejudice data. Okay, and that is: is the antipathy to the degree that there's antipathy here, is the antipathy toward the person or is it toward the behavior? So, for example, if you're thinking about homosexuality uh, and religions, you know, churches that teach that's wrong, well, maybe the concern is that it's, it's the behavior, uh, not the person. This is the, the sort of classic hate the sin, love the sinner argument. Okay. Uh, obviously, there's, there are good examples of this, uh, you know, precedent for it in Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery. You know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, not condoning the adultery, but compassion, caring for the woman. Okay, so we wanted to try to go after that and see whether that's, maybe it's it's reaction to the value violation, not to the value violator. And the way we tried to do this is set up a procedure where participants, well we told them that we were interested in the effects of intimate self-disclosure on uh, performance of tasks that either did or did not have consequences for the disclosure, okay? And so the way we were doing this is that at a previous session, uh, we had a participant, number one, write the most self-disclosing note they felt comfortable writing in the situation, which our participants were then gonna read. That was the first note they would read. Then uh, the, First, the the disclosure would find at the earlier session that what the consequences were going to be for the task. There were two possible tasks that the person could work on. These were just digit circling tasks that they were doing where they would circle a combination of one, three, and four, seven on a page that had numbers strung out. And any non-correct combinations, they just drew a line through. So you've got a line, and circles, and lines, and so forth. Uh, And they had two of these tasks. Uh, one of them was going to be for the disposer, one was going to be for a student, just a randomly chosen student who was not in the study uh, from the introductory psychology class, so an unknown other. Okay. And for some participants, presumably both tasks would actually have consequences for the disposer. Others, both tasks for the stranger, some one task for one, one for the other, and of course our people all got assigned to the condition where it was one task. Task A was for the stranger, task B was for the disclosure, and then we would measure. Well, the second note was what the disclosure wanted to do with any money they might win if there was money that they could win. So that was those were notes were written supposedly at an earlier session. There was nobody else present at the time. Um, we of course wrote the notes, and uh, here's. Uh, our, our disclosure was named Jerry or Jenny, and that's all that was on the note. Uh, and this is the start of the note. KU is the University of Kansas. Of okay. uh, so just sort of standard stuff. Uh, then in one, in one condition, this is what we call the gay condition. Uh, Jerry or Jenny goes on to say, now this was not in bold, obviously. These were handwritten notes. Uh, yeah. Lawrence is where the University of Kansas is. Uh, okay. And in a non-gay condition, you've got exactly the same thing, except the business about being gay was just left out. Okay. So it's either uh, this bit about being gay or not. Okay, so there's that information. After reading that first note, we get measures of perceived similarity and stuff just to check our manipulation. Then the participants are told, and at that point supposedly in the procedure, (coughs) the disclosure had been told that one task had consequences for them. And then we get the second note. And the second note in the straight condition, whoops, no, this is just the tail end of the note in the straight condition, sorry. Uh, okay. In one, for half of the participants in the gay condition, they read this, that Jerry Jenning wants to go to a gay pride rally in San Francisco with the money, <coughs> this would be really great to have money. Um, for the other half in the gay condition, and for those in the straight condition, instead, they're taking a trip to Santa Fe to visit their grandparents, okay? And so what we're trying to do is <coughs> disentangle the possibility of helping the value violator versus helping promote the value violation. Okay, separate the sin and center. Okay. Uh, here are our results. This is uh, on. A, we've done a median split here, so these are people who are relatively high above the median on the intrinsic scale. Uh, and I wanted to put this up first. This is just the straight grandparents, which is our sort of baseline condition. Obviously, you see that, uh, oh, I should say what the measure is. It's uh, the mean proportion of correctly circled combinations that help the disclosure. So we take just the total number of correct uh, combinations on both tasks and simply take the proportion that's for the disclosure. And not surprisingly, this is high. I mean, 0.5 would be helping each equally. But self-disclosure tends to lead to liking uh, and... You know, you know about this person, you know they have a specific need. So it's not too surprising that this is relatively high. What's more interesting is what happens in the other two conditions. Both of these are significantly lower than in the straight grandparents. And the important effect is that it's not just when the gay person wants to go to a rally. Even if the gay person simply wants to go visit grandparents, there's a significant decrease, Okay. Uh, For those low, you don't, well, you get the decrease with the rally, but not with the grandparents. These are low on the intrinsic scale. This is what it looks like for the Quest scale. Uh, And you see that they don't differentiate when it's grandparents or when it's the rally. Now, that raises the possibility that maybe people can score Uh, high on the Quest scale, maybe this is not a value violation for them. I mean, because they're they're willing to promote going to the rally as well as going to the grandparents. And so we did a follow-up study, and here uh, we've got a different form of of what we're calling an intolerance condition. We assumed that if they were anti-gay, that should violate the values of a person who scores high on the Quest dimension. Uh, And we've got that Oops. Juxtapose. this is just leaving that information out. Uh, Then we've got someone, instead of going to the gay pride rally, we created an organization called Stand Up Straight. Uh, And so they were going to a Stand Up Straight rally in Santa Fe versus going to visit grandparents. Okay, so it's conceptually the same thing except we've turned it into an ante. Uh, and here's what you find for the question there. Uh, they're still willing to help the intolerant person go visit grandparents, but not, decidedly not, to go to the rally. Okay, uh, at that point, we, I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, Goldfried and in Minor who were in Australia were less impressed by this. They felt that, well, the problem is that maybe this doesn't really violate the values of people who score high on the quest orientation because, of course, their values, I mean, the quest orientation is about religious tolerance and so it should be in the religious domain. Uh, Despite the fact that, clearly, the people high on the quest dimension don't seem to be particularly in favor of supporting this. But anyway, they did a study. Oh, sorry. That that was uh, for the intrinsic scale. It turns out the intrinsics uh, are, those who score high on the intrinsic scale are less willing to help the rally, but they're also significantly less willing to help the intolerant, the the anti-gay person. They they seem to be sort of all purpose uh, discriminators a bit. (laughs) Uh, but what Goldfried and Miner did was they tried to create a fundamentalist. And so that that was there's that condition versus the one where there's not that information. And then on the second note, what they had is involved in a Fred Nile project. Those of you who are from Australia may know who Fred Nile is. He's glad
1: notorious. Yeah,
0: right. Uh, and I think a political figure as well as religious, is that right? Um, but anyway, they're trying to stop a shopping center, uh, and the alternative is uh, friend having a dinner party and trying to raise money for the dinner party. So you know, conceptually, it's the same sort of thing. And what they find is that for people high in the quest orientation, there is a significant drop. And so they say, ah, the quest orientation is not associated with universal compassion, in fact, but if you do it right, it's associated. You know, if you get them in their domain where they care, they are as limited in their compassion as people who score high on the intrinsic scale. Uh, I think there are a couple problems with, not surprisingly, I mean, the you know, the, the devil is always in the details in research like this. Uh, they didn't use the crust scale that we have used or developed, they instead used a crust scale that was developed by Altmeyer and Hunsberger, and the problem with the Altmeyer and Hunsberger, it was an attempt to do a balanced Quest scale with equally balanced positive and negative items, which is in general a good thing to do, but it turns out in practice, it's a very difficult thing to do. And basically what they ended up doing, I think, old Meyer and Hunsberger, is developing an anti-fundamentalism scale. I mean, their Quest scale correlates minus 0.8 with their fundamentalism scale. And that's as good as the internal consistency reliabilities of the scales. So they're measuring the same thing. Uh, their quest scale correlates 0.5 with the original quest scale, so I think that's a problem. Uh, also their sample was not screened for religious background or interest in religion, and that's typically done. These, these questionnaires were developed to be used with Christian samples, okay, and they used some, their sample included uh, 52 Christians, 12, I think, who were from other religions, and 20... Two or something like that, who were non-religious, yeah. uh, and I think that's a problem. We normally screen for interest, so we did redid their study, uh, trying to use their material as much as possible. Uh, so this was done at the University of Kansas again, uh, but we used their description of the person's beliefs, and <clears throat> that's the control condition. And so we created an organization. We didn't have Fred and uh, We We used an organization called God's Truth. Uh, the truth, the only truth about religion and grandparents. Again. Okay. Uh, and what we found using the standard quest scale is that in fact the quest orientation, these people were perfectly willing to help this person visit grandparents, but less so to the God's truth rather. Okay, (laughs) enough data. Let me just briefly talk about a distinction that sort of comes out of these data, I think, between uh, intolerance of, tolerance of, or facilitation of intolerance. Because what we've got is intolerant targets here. Now, and how does one treat an intolerant target, which I think is an interesting puzzle. And what we've got is... Uh, the issue of failure to help the intolerant person versus failure to promote the intolerance. Uh, and I wonder, this is in relation to what issues that were raised in the background paper, whether intolerance qualifies as unjustifiable harm. That is, somebody is intolerant, that's unjustifiable. Uh, and so therefore, as a criterion for justifiable intolerance, uh, should we encourage intolerance of the intolerant? or of intolerance. And it leads to what has sometimes been called Morgan's paradox. Morgan was a former president of Antioch College in the US. And uh, it's it's an interesting conundrum uh, that tolerance is tolerant of intolerance. It fears being destroyed. If it's intolerant, then it destroys itself. Um, So let me just wrap up uh, with sort of a summary. what I've argued and, and trying to present data for is that in the US, again, for Christians, I should say, in the US, religious involvement has long been associated with intolerance and prejudice, not universal compassion. But in considering this, we really need to distinguish the different dimensions of religion. We also need to assess non-prescribed as well as prescribed prejudices and use covert as well as overt measures. And when we do that, the extrinsic, that is, Using religion as a means to other ends dimension related to increased prejudice, but only when the prejudice is proscribed. No relation when it's non-prescribed. And it's also true <coughs> when it's covert. Uh, intrinsic and dimensions related to actually I probably rather than decreased, I should say, no relationship to prejudice. That would be a more accurate statement. Uh, only on overt measures related to increased prejudice when it's not prescribed. And the quest dimension seems to be related to decreased prejudice, even on covert measures when prejudice is either prescribed or non-prescribed. And it may, and I emphasize the may, it's, this is by no means certain, be related to universal compassion. Now, how much this generalizes, obviously, I don't know. So, let me And
1: Commenting will be Dr. Steve Clark. I'll try and keep this uh, brief so we can both maximise time for discussions and stick to our uh, increasingly tight schedule. Um, so oh, I'm a philosopher, um, I'm interested in conceptual questions, I'm no good at uh, data, so uh, the thing that jumped out at me that I thought about was, um, when both we did the background document and looked at Quest and uh, when I had a uh, sneaky peek at Dan's PowerPoints uh, in advance was uh, Quest. Um, and what I thought was, well, there's kind of two things going on with someone who's uh, what was the phrase, has the uh, Quest dimension or the Quest... Uh, well, a Quest orientation. Quest orientation. Or on a Quest orientation or something like that. They're open-minded, uh, and interested in existential questions, and they're looking for answers. And the question that occurred to me is, well, what happens when they find the answers? Um, well, one thing might happen. Uh, they might sort of go in the direction of Socrates, uh, the sort of, um, the uh, more I know, the uh, more I realize how little I know. And that sort of uh, path of development would sound like the path of development of someone who's going to remain high on the uh, on the quest scale. Uh, so, presumably, if quest is, toler- is correlated uh, with tolerance, that sort of uh, quest development is <coughs> going to lead someone to remain highly tolerant. But there seems to be another possibility, and I mean, maybe there's some data there that you point us to uh, about what happens. But it seems that you start asking the existential questions and then you come to some answers. And uh, the answers might be quite definitive answers and you might no longer be asking yourself existential questions and you might no longer have the same um, drive to open-mindedness and therefore tolerance. That seems to be another possibility. Now, this is (coughs) completely anecdotal. um, But at the same time that... um, we were doing the background stuff and reading some of your work. I was also reading a book by uh, the Japanese author Marukami, and he'd done some really interesting interviews with um, participants in and survivors of the sarin gas attacks. So these were members of the Arm Shinriko uh, in Japan in the mid-90s. And what seemed to me striking about the people who were recruited into this uh, cult, which turned into just a crazy cult, was that they all appeared to start so when they, they described how they got into the Yamashin Rico, as sort of, I was looking for something. You know, I didn't know what it was, I tried this religion, I tried this religion, it didn't seem quite right, but um, the charismatic figure who led the Yamashin Rico seemed to get them in. So that seems to be uh, a case in point of perhaps people who were starting as tolerant questers and then became, uh, I imagine, highly intolerant. Perhaps they weren't intolerant, but then we need an explanation of why they saw fit to try and commit mass murder in the Japanese subway. Um, so those are the questions that uh, jumped out at me, so maybe uh, I'll, I'll leave it there if you have some quick responses. I'll go from there. Thanks, Steve.
0: There, there are several issues, I think, in what you raise. One of them it, it, that I'll just comment on briefly is a general issue of if there are these three different dimensions, and people have trouble thinking about these as dimensions, it seems they really want to type people uh, into being extrinsic, intrinsic, or quest. And so I've had people talking about questers, and I I do cringe at that. But thinking that way, there's a tendency to want to sort of project a developmental trajectory. And so uh, at least one implicit trajectory in what you say is perhaps a person starts off as extrinsic in their religious orientation and then they start questing uh, and then they find and they become intrinsic. And that's that's a possible developmental sequence that uh, that has been suggested in the literature and I think it's, it is suggested by one of your. Uh, Scenarios. Other people have said no, uh, the order is intrinsic. Uh, ex- sorry, extrinsic-intrinsic quest. Long story short, I think we've gone through almost every permutation, and, and this is all speculation, uh, nobody knows, um, because it would take developmental studies, you know, longitudinal studies to really answer that, and we don't have those data. I, I would love to have the data. Uh, I think perhaps a key element in Whether the questing is of the type that's likely to lead to quick closure uh, versus an opening to a process, uh, is that aspect of of the quest dimension that is viewing doubts as positive? I mean, I would think that your person who is looking for the answers and gloms onto something fairly quickly and firmly Is not viewing doubts as positive. This is, uh, you know, this is a problem. They are looking for something to solve a problem, and they want a quick solution. Uh, At least, in thinking about the cross dimension, one aspect uh, that I have, or or one example, I guess would be the best way to say it, that, that I have thought of is Gandhi talks about his experiments with truth, and it seems to be an ongoing process. And so I would expect this quest orientation to be more ongoing, you know, uh, if it's if it's a if if the person is actually truly in, involved in a quest. But the other possibilities are there, and hey, we just don't know. So.